so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Ronnie Kurtz to talk about his new book, Fruitful Theology, How the Life of the Mind Leads to the Life of the Soul, from B&H Publishing. Today, we talk about how theology can help reorient our entire life toward the fruit of the Spirit, which leads to right living before God. Ronnie earned his PhD from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and currently serves as an assistant professor of theology at Cedarville University. Before moving to Ohio, Ronnie was a pastor in Kansas City, Missouri for seven years, where he also taught theology at Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College. He's also the author of No Shadow of Turning, Divine Immutability in the Economy of Redemption. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Ronnie, thank you so much for joining me today here on the Digital Public Square podcast. As we get going, I wanted to see if you could tell listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of your journey into studying and teaching theology, as well as what kind of prompted you to write a book like this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me just start by uh, saying thank you, Jason. I, I appreciate you, appreciate what you do here on the show, appreciate your voice. And uh, it was really fun to kind of be book buddies for yeah, a day. We had, we did we had get the to same be. launch day. So congrats to you as well. Well, thank you. Yeah. About the book, uh, kind of what led me to it is a number of things. I tell folks that I live somewhat of a hybrid life. And what I mean by that is I have a deep love for the academy. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a professor. I, I've given my life to this. I love students. I love writing and researching. I love the intellectual life and all the things that come with it. However, I also have a pretty deep love for the local church. And I just can't stay away from God's people too long. My joy is largely stoked by God's people in the local church. And so while I do love the academy, really my first love is the local church. And so, you know, I spent the last four or five years working on my dissertation. And I knew coming off the end of that, I wanted to turn towards the trades level, the trade level publication, but I wanted to still be in the realm of theology. And so there were a couple of things that I saw that really were alarming to me, to be totally frank, that kind of led to me writing this book. The first was 
just everyday lay people in churches seeing theology with this like bad view, a view of this is reserved for a select few, or this is stale or cold or distant, or this is just to stimulate the mind. And I wanted to show them a different vision of a theology that can stir your affections or a theology that is more closely related to your heart. So there was that concern driving the writing. And then the second one, to be totally frank, for those who do enjoy theology, it isn't really difficult these days to be discouraged by what takes place in the name of quote-unquote theology. And it felt like we were experiencing unique division and disunity in the church in the name of theology or truth or, or ethics or what have you. And it felt like uh, whether it would be online, it's not hard to find people being backbiting or sarcastic or belittling or using theology for self-platforming or something like that. And not just online, but even in local churches over the last three, four, five years, it has seemed like churches that have been able to assume some unity are really struggling with disunity whether it's for cultural reasons or racial reasons or political reasons or you name it. And so I just kind of wanted to be uh, a small voice saying, hey, theology is not going to fix all of our problems. However, if what we're after is God and reflecting God, theology can be a useful tool. And so that's kind of the impulse behind the book. Yeah, and it's it's pretty evident as you read the book, and, and we encourage listeners to go pick up a copy of it, Fruitful Theology uh, from B&H. But this book, to me, it was really refreshing, and I hope that encourages you as an author. It was really refreshing because I think often when we talk about theology, especially in our circles, now externally, kind of the external world is a little different, but when we talk about theology in our circles, as you said, it's, it can become very backbiting, very divisive. It all is about, I'm just going to preach the truth, and no matter how, it doesn't matter the way I do it, no matter the tone, no matter the way I go about it, the words I use, things like that, um, is I'm just going to preach truth no matter what. And there's an element of truth to that. Like, you do want to preach truth. You want to be unapologetic about preaching the truth. You don't want to cower in it at all. But in the same respect, there's that kind of speaking truth with grace, that we see modeled throughout Jesus' ministry. And that's something that I think not only you do really well, but as you kind of said earlier, you kind of straddle two worlds. You're in the world of academia, uh, producing academic works, you're teaching, you're knee-deep in these discussions. But at the same time, you also love the local church. And I think that's what makes you probably a very good professor. I've never sat under you, but I would assume that would be the case. Um, but also just a very good pastor is there's a depth there. And so I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack a little bit about that relationship of truth and grace, because I think often we hear them as competing with one another. It's truth or grace, but that's not really the biblical paradigm that we see. And this isn't just in the life of Jesus. I mean, one of the things I've written about in my work is the nature of wisdom. It's, you know, the wisdom literature, even you see this, it's, it's not only about proclaiming the truth, but living in light of those truths. So can you unpack a little bit about the relationship of truth and grace? Yeah, I love this question. And uh, thank you for your kind words. If I was asked, you know, what, what biblical passage most undergirds the book, there's, there's obviously a lot I could pull from. But 2 Corinthians 3.18 has really been kind of the last year or two on my mind with this exact question that you're getting at in which Paul tells the Corinthian church that uh, we, with unveiled faces, behold Christ from one degree of glory to another. 
And that concept of beholding Jesus from one degree of glory has really kind of stuck with me because what I'm what I'm trying to do in the book is show people there really is a kind of intellectual life that is tied to the soul and affections such that we can look at Jesus until we begin to look like Jesus. And it's in that relationship where you're getting the truth looking at Jesus. And theology is not the only way to do that, but it's a very good way to do it. So we're looking at the truth of theology, but doing it in a way that our beholding Jesus will make us be conformed into his image, which is where the grace part comes in. And I think in in the first chapter of the book, uh, which is, or the second chapter, the first chapter is called uh, why do the theologians rage? And I basically just work through some of the problems I see in in modern theology and theological discourse. The second chapter on love, I talk about a doctrine that uh, some modern theologians uh, haven't made as big of a deal of, but in the history of the church, a particular doctrine that's that's been repeated over and over, and that's the doctrine of divine simplicity. Divine simplicity as a historic doctrine simply just teaches that God is not composed in parts. Uh, we can see this in the biblical testimony in First John when the scripture says, God is love. So God doesn't simply have love as if love was a part of God that he could put on or take off. God doesn't have love as if he could increase or decrease in love. No, it's, it's much more grand than that in the scriptures. God doesn't merely have love. God is love. And if that's true, that totally changes the game for theological reflection. Because what we do in theology is we contemplate God and all things in relation to God. And so as we turn our mind's eye towards the God who doesn't merely have love, but who is love, it ought to transform us into a loving people. And so if theology is the contemplation of truth as God and all things in relation to God and God is love, that's where the truth and grace, we just do not have the option as Christians to choose one or the other. It is not an option for us. We, we will pursue both or we will be unfaithful. So to drill down a little bit on that, because one of the things that I do with my students is saying, hey, words matter and definitions matter. And sometimes uh, we, even in the church, but especially in kind of the wider culture, will utilize terms or concepts and we say things. We mean one thing, people interpret or hear something different. So when you say God is love and scripture teaches this concept, what is love then? Because love means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think especially in this debate, it's incredibly important when we're speaking truth in love. Some people interpret us as love as kind of passing over, not caring about truth, accepting people for how they are or or what they believe, kind of that kind of fuzzy love in some sense. So when the scriptures are speaking about God is love. What is love in that kind of paradigm? How do we understand a biblical concept of love? Yeah, well, a couple of things. That's that's a really insightful question, and there's a lot of ways we could take it. I do think you're right. I think we, we do have to keep together the truth aspect of truth and love. Even in, in the book, I talk about theology uh, not only being for the sake of stoking kindness and gentleness and self-control and those other virtues that make up the list of the fruit of the Spirit— but theology can also help us know when those things are real. For example, we are not only called to be peaceable with everyone, so long as it depends on us, but also if we think about like a, a passage like Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 6, there seems to be a, a pericope in which there is a, a person who is declaring that there is peace when there is no peace. 
And Jeremiah rebukes him. He says, you say peace, peace, but there is no peace. And we don't want to do that either. What we don't want to do is say, this is kumbaya, everything's okay, believe what you will. But we want to do so, draw lines when necessary, not say peace, peace when there is no peace, but do so in love. So to answer your question very directly, I would be a little hesitant to try to elaborate on what it means for God's essence to be love. Uh, A lot of theologians throughout church history, when thinking about a doctrine like divine incomprehensibility, it's one thing for for us to say that God is. It's another thing for us to say what God is. And so we know that God is love. To John Chrysostom, Gregory of Nazianzus, talk about uh, attributing God's mysteriousness with the tribute of our silence. And so I would be a little hesitant to try to expound on what it means for God's essence to be love. I know that it is because of 1 John. However, I do think the scriptures, even by way of analogy, do help us see what it means for God to be love in God's actions as God turns his essence our direction and in the economy of his redemption sees our helpless estate and comes after us. And so while we, while we might want to attribute God's holy otherness with our silence about his actual prime essence, we can say when he turns in our direction, it is always for our good. And I do think we get an example of love in that way. So what does that mean for your question then is if you have to rebuke someone, it ought to be for their good, not for your applause, not for your pride, not for you winning the, the quote unquote war. If you are going to use truth in a way to rebuke a brother or sister, it ought to be for their good for their joy and for the glory of God. Well, one of the things, I mean, even even in that explanation, one, I appreciate the humility. There's an epistemic humility. We talk a lot about that here on the podcast, about not only not speaking out of turn, but also kind of acknowledging our own limits, but even kind of our ultimate limits as just human beings. Is there certain things that are incomprehensible about God uh, that he reveals in part, but not in full? And I try to remind my students of that too, is that we're finite and he's infinite. Meaning we're not fully going to comprehend God. We never will, very likely. I mean, I don't want to speak too candidly about the future because we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, But I would say we're always going to be creatures. Uh, He's always going to be the creator. And there's always going to be that distance in that sense, but not relational distance because he does love us. He cares for us. He sent a son to die for us so that we could have a relationship with him. But it is the other side of that. And I love your answer there um, because it also shows kind of this humility not only before God, but before others. And it's in many ways modeling the fruits of the Spirit, which is really what you focus your entire book on. I mean, each chapter is kind of tackling one of the major fruits of the Spirit. We'll get to that in a little bit, talking about Galatians 5. I want to dialogue a little bit about those. Um, But one of the questions I've always intrigued to talk to ethicists, philosophers, and theologians is how they frame things up. Um, and how they have categories and how they relate to one another. And so this is a fun conversation because I'm an ethicist and moral philosopher. You're a theologian, specifically systematic theology. And it always reminds me, there's a quote from, and you may, I don't know if you've heard um, of this quote before, but it's by Christoph Ernst Luthart uh, from like 1876. And he described it in like the most beautiful way. And I've, I see people like Bavink and people like Henry kind of pick up on this or allude to him. But he says that God first loved us is the summary of Christian doctrine. We love him is the summary of Christian morality. 
And I, I just love the simplicity of that because often I've noticed in our circles in particular within kind of evangelicalism, we often are theology first and everything else is kind of a sub-discipline or application thereof. So primarily it's theology, having right beliefs. But as you rightfully show, those beliefs are put into action. They lead to transformation that lead to differing actions in a way of living. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you understand the nature of theology and its relationship to other disciplines like philosophy, but specifically ethics. Like, is there a relationship there? Because you see it in Luthart, where you see it is God loved us as a summary of Christian doctrine, our response to God. What do we do in light of that as ethics and morality? Same is true in Bavink, where he saw dogmatics and ethics as the two primary disciplines. He always said that they're not materially different, but they're also inextricably linked to one another. So just how do you frame up the idea of theology and ethics in particular? Because I think that has a direct bearing on the fruits of the Spirit, for example, and kind of how you lay out the rest of the book. So I just wanted to hear a little bit from you on that. This is a fun question. First, I would I would want to admit that I'm not an ethicist, and I feel fairly strong epistemological limitations there. Uh, I'm not nearly well, I'm as not read. a theologian. I'll say that as well. So <laughs> I'm an ethicist. I know my own limitations. So we were in good company. That's right. Okay, good. Well, um, so if, if, uh, if you find my answer lacking, let me apologize on the front end. But I would say I'm pretty influenced. Anyone who's read any of my work is not surprised by this. But I'm, I'm pretty influenced by John Webster and his vision for what theology is and what theology is supposed to do is it's found its way into my DNA for better or worse. And so with him, along with Aquinas and Franciscus Winius and, and other theologians, I would define theology as the contemplation of God and all things in relation to God. And so what, what that means is the principle and source of all things that are properly theological have to do first and foremost with the triune God. He is the source of theology. We, as Christians, uh, historically have believed in a doctrine called divine aseity, which means God has life in himself and is therefore not contingent upon anything else. But that isn't that doesn't just have material consequences, meaning God has the power of life in himself and therefore he can create the world out of nothing. But I think it also has intellectual consequences. God has life in himself and is therefore not just the principle and source of material realities, but also intellectual realities. He is, even by virtue of sequence, before all things, there is no such thing as truth without God. And so I would say the first concern of the Christian theologian or the Christian ethicist is to do theology in the light of the Trinity. However, I often joke with my students when we talk about the relationship between the intellectual life and the quote-unquote practical life, which I kind of hate doing that dichotomy anyway, I joke with them, I will allow them to do theology for theology's sake the moment they can find one theological clause in the New Testament that wasn't meant to change the life of the church. And the reality is that's a fool's errand. You can't do that, right? Even the most, you know, arguably some of the most rich, rich books in Christian history, like the book of Romans or the book of Hebrews or the book of Galatians, na name your New Testament book. Those books were written with all of the theological gold that is in those books. You think of Romans 5 or Romans 8. It's some of the, the richest theology, Galatians 1 and 2, Ephesians 1. But those were documents to local churches. I would make the argument 
that practical theology should not be a category that we work with. I think historically, I would affirm the four major pillars of theology, biblical, historical, philosophical, systematic. I think those are the four. And all of them have something to say about practical theology. What I would say about a theology that hasn't reached an ethical outpouring is just that it's incomplete. It's not quite done yet. Uh, It needs a little bit more contemplation of both God as the principal source and all things in relation to God as the secondary source. Yeah, and one of the conversations we'll make sure to link to for listeners' sake is uh, we had uh, Ross Hastings on the podcast not too long ago talking about theological ethics, um, specifically about doing ethics in light of the Trinity, so Trinitarian ethics, but also Christological ethics. It was a really fascinating conversation because this is a, an interest area for me in particular in terms of kind of doctrinal method is, or theological method, and just kind of understanding how we break these things up, but also to realize that the way we segment these things are in some sense false, meaning that they're not actually parts. There is a, a continuity, obviously, um, as Bavink will say, that ethics and theology aren't materially different, yet they're formally distinct in the way that kind of he he kind of charts them out. And so I always like to ask ethicists and theologians that question as I'm even chewing on it and saying, okay, what's the relationship here? And how do these things fit together? Because one of the worst things we can do is do theology for theology's sake, where there's no practical moral application, and to only f- to focus on kind of actions and not focus on the nature of God and truth and defining these things. So when I'm talking about uh, even worldview studies or philosophy, I always say we have theology and ethics as kind of the bookends, but we're always talking about a belief that's put into action or an action that's revealing our true beliefs, and they kind of live in this symbiotic relationship. And so it's always a fun question to ask, um, just to say, how are we thinking about this? Because as uh, you probably well know ethics is a formal discipline has not been an emphasis, especially in our circles uh, historically. We often focus on having right belief, and that's true. And those are it's an action oriented belief. But there's so much richness to the Christian ethic that I think we need to kind of retrieve in some sense uh, that that beautiful relationship. So. Obviously, throughout your book, you're focused on the fruits of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit uh, from Galatians 5. And so as we dive into some of those concepts, and we won't hit each of them, so I encourage listeners to go grab a copy of the book, but can you give us a little context for that passage? Like, what is Paul doing here? How is the kind of the book of Galatians, those letter structured and how we get to Galatians 5? Because I think it's tempting at times for us to just kind of drop in and see these as like isolated or something, but there's actually something larger going on. So I want to see if you give us a little context and how Paul contrasts the fruit of the spirit from the works of the flesh. Like what's that relationship there? Yes, absolutely. This is, I I think this is a pretty important question and you're right. This is a temptation. There is so much, the pragmatism that's in hardwired into us wants to just devour the fruit of the spirit as these individualistic moral lessons. And it's so easy to treat Galatians 5 that way. I hope I don't do that in the book. And you're right to point out the context of Galatians being a really important thing to consider because Paul is doing something very specific in Galatians. He is trying to show that the works of the flesh, the the letter of the law, is going to lead to death, but the works of the spirit are going to lead to life and freedom. And so I I think it's very important to keep that, that question in mind of who has bewitched you? The, the question of Galatians 1, Paul is very concerned about the Galatians because he knows 
that it is for freedom that they have been set free, but they're tempted. The His hearers in the church of Galatia are tempted to go back to wearing the yoke of slavery that is uh, a legalistic obedience to the law. And so what Paul does is he shows them kind of a dichotomy of how life can look. And he gives them the fruit of the spirit there in Galatians 5, but right next to the fruit of the spirit is the works of the flesh. And he, he is showing that life in the spirit looks like a particular thing. And a life in the spirit looks like peace, joy, kindness, love, self-control, gentleness, et cetera, et cetera. We could talk about those individuals. But then when he contrasts it, he turns to the works of the flesh and the observant reader will realize there's a significant more in the list of works of the flesh. But the, what's interesting is uh, the things that are in works of the flesh, things like outburst of anger and selfish division and factions and selfish ambition, et cetera, et cetera. Paul says there's a consequence for both of them. The works of the flesh are going to lead to you devouring your brothers and sisters. And the, the fruit of the spirit will lead to your bearing your sister and brother's burdens. And what was convicting to me as I read through Galatians 5 and contemplating kind of the, the, the concept that became this book is not all of the things listed, not all of the vices that are listed in the works of the flesh are pertinent for our conversation, but many of them are. Things like impurity, idolatry, hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy. Part of me hates to say it, but it's not really difficult to hop online and find theology that sounds much more accurately described by things like selfish ambition, envy, factions, than it is gentleness, self-control, and kindness. And my worry, the deep worry that I have as someone kind of watching this and partaking it in a lot of ways as a theologian myself, is we've been warned, things that look like the works of the flesh are going to lead to the devouring of one another. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing. People just consistently devouring one another in the name of quote-unquote theology. And my contention is, man, what if theology actually led the opposite direction towards the bearing of one another's burdens and was described more accurately by kindness, self-control, gentleness, et cetera? And so that kind of that context of Galatians 5 is helpful because we know one's going to lead to death and one's going to lead to freedom, which is Paul's large warning in the book. So obviously, we've already talked about the first fruit of the Spirit that you dive into in love. So we've kind of talked about that, and we won't go kind of through each and every one of them because we won't have enough time. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting to me, and I think is really pertinent to a lot of the conversation today, is the nature of joy um, being a theological virtue. It's encouraging. I mean, even just listening to you speak, there's uh, almost joy is infectious. So when someone is excited and they love the Lord, there's infectious. We see that. And we see that kind of driving so many of uh, these conversations from church leaders and theologians and even ethicists who have a deep and abiding joy, also a deep and abiding hope. And that's one of the things that's really telling, I think, when people are doing, as you say, quote unquote, theology, is they often seem like they're some of the most unjoyful people or non-joyful. They seem angry. They seem bitter. Um, you also see this, I always, I'll joke sometimes, I'll say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not angry about it. Or I'll even say that I'm politically conservative, but I'm not angry about it. Um, and that joke, and that's kind of tongue-in-cheek to say like, 
there's just so much strife and bitterness and kind of disjointedness to a lot of these conversations. And that's what I, I love that kind of your chapter specifically focusing on the nature of joy. And so I wanted to see if you could peel back a little bit. How do we understand this fruit of the Spirit? And why is it that Christians are to be a joyful people, even amidst a lot of the chaos and difficulties that we face today? What is it about our faith that should bring joy as modeling when we're doing theology correctly? Yeah, this chapter was, all the chapters, when you write on the fruit of the Spirit, it uh, in some ways is an unfortunate thing to do because as I was writing, I just had this feedback loop of all of the times that I have not exhibited that that fruit. And you just feel just a wash and hypocritical reality. So that's why in my acknowledgments, I even, while it might sound cheesy to some, I thank the Lord for seeing how many times I failed to be these things and coming after me anyway. But the joy one was particularly convicting because joy in the Christian life is so important. It's not optional. It's literally demanded of us. We are commanded to be a joyful people. And joy is remarkably countercultural in our world. It is the thing to do, to be sarcastic and cynical, constantly tearing people down, tearing institutions down, and to have something that looks like joy or a hint of optimism or a kind of rooted happiness can be quite countercultural. And so when I think about the relationship between joy and theology, one of the things that was important to me, and actually, Jason, I think you'll be interested in this because it does kind of it rubs up against ethics, is exactly what you said about you know those who are doing theology and feeling they just don't seem to have joy. Why are they in this game? One of the things that I, that I was thinking about is if there's two different ways to think about theology, theology as a well of joy and theology as some like war tactic, which is kind of what I see a lot of people using theology as, especially online. It actually kind of shifts how we think about those who disagree with us because the mentality of theology as a war tactic sees people who disagree with you as a battle to be won or as people to be overcome. And if truth is on the line, we can justify, or especially if our side is on the line, we can justify quite a bit of ugliness in the name of winning the battle. However, if you reframe the concept and think about theology as a well of joy, and then think about those who disagree with you, instead of a person to be overcome, this might sound strange, but they might be, it might be more effective from an ethical standpoint, to think of them as a person to be pitied who is leaving joy on the field. Because if there really is joy and truth and they are believing lies, I think we ought to be administers of reality, as Kevin Van Hooser would say. And, and where there is lies, we ought to help them strip those lies, which are likely stealing their joy, and administer reality in the place of lies in order to invoke their joy and carry their burdens with them. And so I do think there is a more Christian posture to thinking of theology as joy than thinking of theology as war. Now, of course, I say that with a caveat that sometimes we have to draw a line and there are hills to die on. I'm not trying to you know, get rid of our backbones here, not at all. But I do think there is a deep attraction to those people who are rooted in their life who are stable, who are not constantly yelling, and just who permeate joy. And theology, it's, this is an important caveat too, theology is not enough 
to give you joy. And if you try to get out of theology all of the ingredients needed for joy, you will be dissatisfied. It's not enough. It's not a sufficient condition, but I do think it's a necessary condition. So it's a good tool, but it's not the end all. Yeah, I think one of the things you hit on that's really important there, um, and that's a a lot of stuff I want to chew on, um, but one of the things that you said is that kind of warlike language. And so I've been pretty critical in my work of the warlike language with the caveat that when you look at the New Testament especially, there is a sense of spiritual warfare. So I don't want to get rid of the warfare language entirely, but you almost have to reframe what is warfare and who, you know, is, uh, I think it's in Peter we see is we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of evil. So it's kind of reframing that warfare language that I think is really helpful. And you do so as a joyful warrior. You do so as a warrior who is fixated on the love of God and the picture of God. And I always talk about the summary of Christian ethics is Jesus' own words. He says in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the way I do it is, as I'm talking about in teaching ethics and kind of thinking about ethics, is you pair the great commandment with the great commission. And so you have this love mentality that's forcing us outside of ourselves of loving God and loving our neighbor. It's not focused on me, it's focused on God and others. And then you have this go therefore and tell the nations and proclaim to them uh, who God is and what he's done through Jesus Christ. And so I say all that is that I do think that there is that joyful element that kind of fuels the mission of God of the great commandment and the great commission. One of the things that I notice in my job specifically, so I always, people are like, what do you do for a living? And if I'm feeling kind of cheeky, I might say, I talk about all the things you're not supposed to talk about at Thanksgiving. Uh, religion and politics. And everyone kind of gets a little chuckle out of it. And then they're kind of like, okay, so what are you going to, like, what do you actually do? And I'm like, I literally talk about religion and politics, ethics, society, things like that. Like, that's kind of interesting. But it always is often cast in the sense of this warfare, a culture war. Um, And I think there's some validity to that language. So I'm not ready to just get abandon it completely. But I am saying there is a reframing element that goes on there. But some of the other fruits of the spirit that you talk about, like peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, that is something that's completely reorienting our approach to the public square. It should at least. So I wanted to see if you could unpack that a little bit of why did the fruits of the spirit like that of peace, patience, kindness, and gentleness kind of reorient us and reorienting not only our approach to theology and ethics, our theology and um, truth and grace, as well as how we engage other people. And you kind of talked about that in light of people being, we should see people to be pitied in some sense because they're leaving joy in the field. But how do these fruits of the Spirit reorient and kind of reshape our approach to the public square, not just individuals in particular? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the way that the fruit of the Spirit shape and mold the Christian is we just have to. We have to have a self-controlled temper, a self-controlled tongue, and we are not allowed to respond with any of the vices that make up the works of the flesh, outbursts of anger, envy, jealousy, etc. And so one of the things that I find interesting about the fruit of the Spirit is something you've already even in passing mentioned, is that in God's infinite wisdom, he made, inspired Paul to write the fruit of the Spirit with a singular word. This is not the fruits of the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. And so we're we're not allowed to buffet this. We're not allowed to say, you know what, I'll take joy and I'll take patience 
but not kindness and not gentleness. I'm going to be mean. I'm going to be loud. I'm going to be mean, but I'm going to be joyful about it. (laughs) Uh, We're not allowed to do that. We have a holistic approach to the cultivation of our own souls. And therefore, we have a holistic approach to the conversations with our neighbors. Our soul must be all of these virtues listed in the fruit of the Spirit. And our conversations with others must be all of these fruit listed in the fruit of the Spirit. And my wife, and when I was working on some of these, she, she asked me two questions that was fun to think about. She asked, which one was the most informative for you? Like, which was the most joyful for you to write? Uh, the answer to that one is the, the patience chapter, surprisingly, was my favorite to write. And then she asked, which one do you think is the most countercultural? And it just felt like, depending on the day, I was like, love. No, 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 no. Gentleness, definitely gentleness. No, 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 no. Kindness. And so the reality is that's, this is, the, this is spiritual sanctification, is what it looks like to treat other people in the, the public square, especially. Right now, trying to treat others in the public square in a way that even slightly resembles these fruit of the Spirit mean you're just going to be different. And you might not win, quote unquote, in cultural standards. And we have to reckon with that. There is a real situation in our cultural moment where often the loudest voices are the voices that are going to win, or the most flagrant voices are the voices that are going to win. But volume and flagrance are not fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness and love are. And we have to know that this might come with... um a bit of self-sacrifice. Yeah, I mean, wow. There's a lot that we could unpack there. And obviously, this has been such a fun conversation so far. I wish we could keep going. But one of the things that we always do as we kind of end the podcast here is talking about kind of further resources. One of the things that we care about deeply on this podcast is equipping the next generation and equipping us as we engage in our families and in the public square and our places of work and business So one of the reasons I love having conversations like this is we get to dive in on some very specific topics and help to equip people. We also do so through kind of some further reading, which is really fun about your book because you kind of co-opted my question even before I got to it, is you have an appendix literally entitled, I'm new to theology, where do I start? So I want to ask you that, Pastor Ronnie. I want to know, where do we start? I mean, there are a host of books. You have a ton of resources there. Are there a couple books that you would say, hey, these are kind of the primo books. Like you have to, if you read nothing else, you need to read a couple of these and maybe a couple old ones, a couple new ones. And we'll link to all of these in the show notes for listeners to grab afterwards as well on top of your own book. But what are some books that you would recommend or resources that you think would be really helpful for people if they want to dig a little bit deeper? Yeah, that appendix was straight up Taylor's idea. And at first I hated the idea of it. He, he, I wrote the book sent it to him, you know, he did his editorial work. But one of the things he suggested was, hey, you're going to get a lot of, cool, I agree with you. So so what do I do? And he's like, what, what would you think about adding an appendix that basically just said, here's how you get started in a theological life. And I was like, do you know how hard that would be in 10 pages? <laughs> like, this is an entire lifetime of a journey, you know? And he's like, okay, I get that, but just do your best. And so I actually was really thankful for that challenge. It was difficult you know, to try to write that appendix. And I do list a number of sources that folks could read. But in terms of, you know, for this podcast, if I was to answer that question for someone, hey, where should I start reading? It's really going to depend on your reading level, on your familiarity with the concepts and grammar of theology. I know the listeners of this podcast are um, 
you know, they kind of vary all over the academic spectrum. And so I'll just kind of, I'll answer kind of middle of the line. So if these, these might be above your reading, these might be below your reading first. And I don't, I don't want to like whatever Jesus juke the thing, but of course have a consistent diet of scripture, right? God could have revealed himself in any way. And he chose this book. And so we just, we have to be a people of the book. You will not be a good theologian while neglecting your Bible. It just won't happen. Outside of biblical, uh, I'll, I'll do some new, some old, as you said. I've already mentioned John Webster. I am deeply influenced by John Webster. His book, God Without Measure, Volume 1, published in 2016, the year he passed away, is maybe the most influential modern book in my life. And so I would very much recommend that. Along with uh, Webster's God Without Measure, I would recommend his his work called The Culture of Theology, in which he talks about the location and the sound, the way that theology should take place uh, and what it should sound like, what it should feel like, the ecclesial nature of theology, the communal nature of theology, the ethical nature of theology. Uh, so I would just recommend those. A couple of others that I would say are, are, are quite helpful going older. Uh, I made a joke to my students the other day that I apologized for only recommending books written before the fifth century. That's my students' joke. That's all I ever recommend. Uh, but there, there's a reason for that. They have stand, stood the test of time, and some of the best thinking in Christianity has already happened. And so typically in a 2,000-year-old faith, uh, novelty is not good, but nuance is. And so a couple of older books that I would say just to get you used to the primary sources, I think you would have a hard time beating On the Incarnation by Athanasius. I would specifically recommend the St. Vladimir Seminary Press version. So you could read C.S. Lewis's introduction in which he makes an argument for not dichotomizing devotional books and theology books. His introduction's worth the, the cost of the book. I would recommend On the Unity of Christ by Cyril. I would recommend On God and Christ by Gregory of Nazianzus. I would recommend anything by Augustine, uh, of course, including On the Trinity and His Confessions in the City of God. I am particular to post-Reformation Orthodox theologians, people like Vahamas al-Brakl. Uh, you might never heard, have heard of him, but he's actually a really accessible theologian. Vahamas al-Brakl is brilliant, but writes in a way that really just about anybody could understand. Petrus von Maastricht has become a favorite of mine. Francis Turretin, of course, is amazing. Stephen Charnock is a gift from God to us English speakers. Uh, he was an English theologian who was just second to none. Uh, so I would recommend those figures. Obviously, things like the Institutes of the Christian Religion by Calvin is a must, etc. Um, but then there are a lot of books being written right now by so many gifted people out there. And so I would just say, read widely. Uh, I would put a small plug in here to uh, to read fiction. I love fiction and poetry. That's kind of what I do for fun when I'm not doing theology. I think uh, expanding your mind with great and beautiful literature is actually helpful in your intellectual life, regardless of what you study. Uh, but those are just a few recommendations that I would say. Yeah, and on that note, especially with reading fiction, uh, one of the things we'll link to and make sure to link to in the show notes is the conversation we had at the end of last year uh, with Karen Swallow Pryor about reading widely um, here on the podcast. So that was a really fun conversation, really, really fruitful, especially in terms of uh, reading fiction and the nature of the Christian worldview um, and how fiction shapes us. Yes, Karen uh, endorsed Fruitful Theology. I was very honored to have her. She's been so influential in helping win back uh, the beauty that is fiction for another generation. So thankful for her work. 
Well, Ronnie, I really appreciate your work. Obviously, you can listeners can tell just by the way you answer questions and how we had this conversation, just how humble you are, but also how gifted you are. Um, so I'm really, really grateful for your ministry, for your work, and especially for your love of the local church. Um, so it's been a really fun conversation here talking about your new book, Fruitful Theology, that you can buy now uh, from B&H Publishing. Uh, you can buy it wherever books are sold. Uh, we'll make sure to link to it in the show notes as well. But I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Man, thanks for having me. I, I, I feel the same about you, brother. The work you do on so many fronts is so useful to us. And to have someone thinking about things like AI and the digital public square, uh, my goodness, your work is so needed. And there are many of us benefiting from the fruit of your labor. So thank you, Jason. Thanks for all you do. And thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Kurtz as well as learn more about his new book, Fruitful Theology, as well as the recommended resources in our show notes. Also make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tick email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest tech news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.